I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Beth Bartell. This is KGNU's How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, July 17th, 2012. Coming up, can you live forever? For answers, we talk with the New York Times bestseller James Rollins about his new sci-fi thriller. It's called Bloodline. Would you live forever? If that was possible, would you opt to take that magic pill that would allow you to live to 250 years? And we talk with CU's Tom Johnson, a pioneer in the science of longevity. The record for life extension in a mouse is, I think, about 60% increase. The average life of a healthy, robust lab mouse is probably about 28 months. The record for an individual mouse, I think, is just under five years. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. A beetle from northern Eurasia is rapidly adapting to Colorado. It's the tamarisk leaf beetle, and while scientists worry about our growing hordes of native pine beetles, they're excited about this Eurasian beetle. The tamarisk leaf beetle targets tamarisk, a Eurasian shrub first brought to the U.S. over 100 years ago as a patio plant. Tamarisk, also known as salt cedar, became a thriving weed taking over riverbanks throughout the southwest and midwest and crowding out the natives. Enter the tamarisk leaf beetle. In 2005, U.S. scientists brought it over on purpose to eat tamarisk. The North Eurasian beetle quickly took hold in northern states, such as Idaho and Montana, but the beetle struggled in Colorado. The problem? Its hibernation gets triggered by late summer's shortening daylight hours. In Montana, the trigger hits around mid-August. In Colorado, the same daylight length occurs earlier in late July. So in Colorado, tamarisk beetles start their long winter's nap in late July. Many starve to death during hibernation. But seven years after their introduction, the beetles in eastern Colorado are now postponing hibernation until mid-August, a two-week period that has made all the difference. Today, Colorado's tamarisk leaf beetles are thriving, according to Dan Bean, who's with the Colorado Department of Agriculture. They're eating enough tamarisk to make some room for native plants. The study appears in the journal Evolutionary Applications. And it's worth noting that the beetle introduction program is on hold while researchers examine tamarisk's role of the survival in the survival of the endangered flycatcher even farther south than Colorado in Arizona and New Mexico. Scientists have, for the first time, directly detected part of the invisible dark matter skeleton of the universe. The discovery of the research team, led by Jörg Dietrich, a physics research fellow at the University of Michigan, confirms a key prediction in the prevailing theory of how the universe's current web-like structure evolved. The map of the known universe shows that most galaxies are organized into clusters, but some galaxies are situated along filaments that connect the clusters. Cosmologists have theorized that dark matter underlies those filaments, but no one has directly detected such filaments until now. Although dark matter is estimated to make up more than 80% of the universe, we don't know what it's made of, and it doesn't emit or absorb light, so astronomers can't see it directly with telescopes. They infer that exists on how its gravity affects visible matter. So to see the dark matter component of the filament that connects two galactic clusters named Abel 222 and 223, Dietrich and his colleagues took advantage of a phenomenon called gravitational lensing. The gravity of the clusters bends the light of more distant objects, allowing the scientists to map out the otherwise invisible dark matter filaments by how they affect that light. 
The paper was published in the July 12th issue of the journal Nature. Fire, flood, lightning, tornadoes. We've had our share of disasters, and since they're all acts of nature, there's more to come. One of the world's leading scientific institutes dedicated to planning for disasters is CU Boulder's Natural Hazard Center. Today, the center is finishing up its 37th annual research and applications workshop in Broomfield. For more, How on Earth's Jim Poland speaks with the conference leader, Kathleen Tierney. The workshop is designed to build bridges among people who are doing research on hazards and disasters, practitioners in agencies or in the private sector, and others who are interested in reducing losses from disasters both in the United States and around the world. Kathleen Tierney is the director of the Natural Hazard Center and a professor of sociology at the University of Colorado Boulder. We have a special focus also on the next generation of researchers and practitioners. So we like to get as many students and postdocs as we can involved in workshop activities. There are hundreds of people at this year's conference. They're here to learn and just as importantly, participate. This is not a professional conference where people come and read papers. In fact, if you try to read a paper, you will never be invited back. The participants come from all the major federal agencies. FEMA, Homeland Security, the Department of Defense, from universities from around the world, the private sector, and the White House. There's even a member of parliament from New Zealand attending. We schedule our sessions so that the speakers take up no more than half of the session in order to allow for questions and answers and discussion. And even though we have over 450 people here, we still try to run it informally and to get as much engagement and participation as possible. There was a special session on Sunday night when a medic from the Colorado Springs Fire Department and clinical psychologists from CU Colorado Springs talked about their experiences during the Waldo Canyon fire. But otherwise, there aren't a lot of first responders at the conference. There are first responders who do come and have come for a long period of time, but there are some real issues right now, mainly dealing with financing at the local community level. There are lots of interesting sessions at the workshop, ranging from managing floods and floodplains, including research from Katrina, to droughts, to the Tohoku earthquake that devastated Japan in 2011. For How on Earth, this is Jim Pullen. Thanks to How on Earth's Jim Pullen for the report. You can learn more by Googling CU Boulder Natural Hazard Center. And this day in science history, actually yesterday, July 16th, 43 years ago, was the launch of Apollo 11, the first human landing on the moon. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Joel Parker. This music is from The Long Now, an effort to design a clock that will chime every year for 10,000 years. For humans, living 10,000 years is impossible. Nevertheless, the quest for immortality has been, well, never-ending. In his latest sci-fi thriller, New York Times bestseller James Rollins explores immortality. In a real science lab, CU Boulder's Tom Johnson makes groundbreaking discoveries about longevity. To compare the science and the sci-fi, here's How on Earth's Shelley Schlender. Scientists with guns are the heroes in the new sci-fi novel Bloodline. It's by New York Times bestselling author James Rollins. 
Here's Rollins talking about the good guys called Sigma and the bad guys who are called the Guild. At the beginning of this novel, the president's daughter has been kidnapped out of a yacht in the Indian Ocean, and Sigma's called in to hunt for her. The target of that abduction is not the daughter, but it's the daughter's unborn child. It's that baby that potentially may or may not have the genetic key to immortality. The bloodline that would allow this baby to have a very horrific thing done to it that might make it live forever. The whole genesis for this book came about, I was actually in a grocery store. I was waiting in line to check out, and there's a Time magazine on the shelf. The cover article for that Time magazine was the year 2045, the year man becomes immortal. 2045, that's not that far off. You know, that's theoretically within you know, our own lifetime. I bought that magazine, but it also set me on about a year-long investigation to really what's going on in that industry about life extension sciences. And there's some amazing things going on there, but also some things that are very scary and frightening. And this book casts a light a bit on that. So even though immortality sounds like a wild, fantastical theme of a story, it's based on real science, and there's some actually incredible things revealed in this novel. That's James Rollins discussing the science in his new sci-fi novel about immortality. But is immortality possible? For a second opinion, here's a scientist at CU Boulder. Tom Johnson, you're a real expert on immortality. Is that fair to say? Yes, I've been alive for close to an immortal period of time. No, I'm just kidding. I think immortality is completely impossible. I mean, obviously, immortality is impossible. But even lifespans that are of biblical length are probably not going to be anything that we see within a similar span of time. So I'm, I'm a large skeptic as to the basic premise of this book. Or any book that talks about immortality. Right. Well, let's back up and talk about why you're interested in these things. You're one of the world's leaders in looking at ways genetically that potentially might extend life. We've been working on uh, biological approaches using genetics as a handle to uh, extend life. And we've been incredibly successful. Our own work has really been to use an experimental system and to be able to lengthen the life of that experimental system and slow aging. Now, when you say an experimental system, you're not talking about a robot. You're not talking about a person. You're talking about a teeny tiny little round worm called C. elegans is one example of the systems that you look at. That's absolutely correct. This little worm has about a thousand cells. Those cells carry out almost all of the functions that the cells in our body do. You mean even though it's a little tiny worm, it's more like us than not like us? Oh, absolutely. It's much more similar to us than it is to a grain of sand. All life on Earth, as far as we know, is really very highly related to other pieces of life. Still, this little worm, this little roundworm, is easier to figure out because it does not have as many cells as we do. So you can fiddle with it more. We can fiddle with it more, but primarily the reason that we can fiddle with it more is that it is tiny. And just the fact that the normal version of this little animal lives only about three weeks, as opposed to our normal versions now living 80 years, makes it much more manipulatable. How much longer than three weeks have you gotten this little tiny C. elegans roundworm to live? Colleagues of mine in, in Arkansas can get the worm to live almost a year. Okay, let's do some math. 
So if it lives three weeks and now they can make it live almost a year. The maximum lifespan has been increased about tenfold. The maximum lifespan of the normal is a little over a month. If this was a person, that'd be like instead of living to be 90, living to be 900. You're into Methuselah there. It's really a Methuselah increase, very biblical. In his book, Bloodline, James Rollins does not talk about the life extension of tiny roundworms. But he does have the bad guys blow up an entire island and several skyscrapers as they try to stop the good guys from rescuing the president's daughter. Rollins also describes evil, artificial intelligence robots that the bad guys are setting loose so that the robots can kill the good guys. Rollins says the science behind those attack robots is real. He gives links to actual videos about that technology in his novel. You can actually see what's going on in that merging of biological neurons with something synthetic. You can actually watch to see exactly how close we are to achieving what I sort of uh, uh, imagine in this novel. When you say how close we are, do you mean immortality or just the ability to have these machines have artificial intelligence? There's a term called the singularity, and that's that moment in time where computers will surpass human intelligence. They're saying that computing power will increase a thousandfold between now and 10 years from now. So can you just imagine what life will be like when computers are a thousand times more powerful than they are today? CU scientist Tom Johnson agrees that machines made by bad people could do bad things. But he says even if we tried to make them be immortal, they probably would not work for as long as we might think. There's some possibilities that computer scientists have raised of perhaps being able to encode human personalities and memories into a silicon-based, maybe life form. Silicon-based entities may have a longer lifespan than carbon-based entities. But then we'd have to have the software be immortal to understand that silicon-based life form. Good point. I can't read my silicon-based life forms from 10 years ago that are on tapes that now are only readable by the Pentagon. In Rollins' sci-fi book, the good guys have to race into the bad guy's underground fortress with a faithful dog that's helping them to try to save the president's daughter from a fate that's worse than death. And there's real science behind that fate worse than death. It involves experiments from the 1940s when Soviet scientists decapitated a living dog, then kept the dog's head alive with early versions of heart and lung machines. Here's Bloodline author James Rollins. It was very creepy because on that video you can see the decapitated head of the dog, yet if it hears a whistle, the ears will perk up. If you touch its nose, its whiskers will, will twitch. So even though this head has been decapitated for days on end, it was still having these responses as though it was still alive. Well, and so in your novel you describe people where the same thing has been done with them, and specifically a lot of women who are being used for breeding experiments for immortality. So I can't imagine that somewhere at some time that somebody's not been experimenting with, with things like we saw in that Soviet-era footage. Back in his lab at CU Boulder, genetic scientist Tom Johnson says that kind of experiment would never be allowed today. We have a very rigid control structure in the, the Western world that would never allow such atrocities to be done. And I, I personally am quite offended to... Uh, even imagine that such things were done. There's very little reason, in my mind, it seems, that we need to impose such kind of suffering on uh, other entities that are living. 
But these things have happened, and there is that side of good and evil to how science gets done. And even though things like heart-lung machines were moved ahead technologically thanks to those kinds of experiments, the cruelty of it would stop you. Yeah, I'm, I really am uh, very cautious with imposing any sort of unnecessary pain on animals. So that's another part of this science fiction book that's different, is that at least in regular ethical circles, that's not the kind of experiments that get done. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, not only would it not be done, but someone doing that experiment in our environment would see the inside of a jail cell pretty quickly. In Bloodline, the bad guys are so bad, almost everything they do deserves a long time in jail. One of the worst things they want is to destroy the brain of the president's daughter so that her body remains alive and can produce babies with just the right genetics to turn the baby's normal, double-stranded DNA into triple-stranded DNA. The bad guys believe triple-stranded DNA could lead to immortality. And actually, CU scientist Tom Johnson says the idea for triple-stranded DNA does come from a scientist. One of the things that I think... The, the author did was to look at a website that uh, a colleague and, and friend, actually, named Aubrey de, de Grey, has put together. And this website talks about mechanisms by which we, human beings, could potentially become immortal. The problem with that particular website and the overall approach that Aubrey champions is that there are no data to support the uh, least indication that the manipulations that Aubrey proposes would actually have any efficacy. I mean, I'm, I'm actually not sure what he's doing. He may be working full-time now on the Methuselah Project, which is his name for this uh, attempt to really extend human lifespan. Now, that's a project which involves mice at this point. Seeing how old a mouse you can get how long do mice live, and how old is the oldest mouse now? Aubrey actually has instituted a prize for increasing the lifespan of a mouse. So this is actually experimental data that would have to be presented to the committee that would judge the efficacy of this, and I'm one of the people on the committee. The record for life extension in, in a mouse is, I think, about... 60% increase. A mouse, the average life of a healthy, robust lab mouse is probably about 28 months. The record for an individual mouse, I think, is just under five years. So 28 months up to five years, which is twice as long. So, but that record, I think, is held by just one individual mouse. So if you look at the average lifespan of that long-lived strain, I'm not exactly sure, but it's probably on the order of about 53, 54 months. But still, that's pretty good. That'd be like a person living to be 250 years old, because the oldest person we have on record is about 125. Right. Yeah, I agree. It's more or less a doubling of the maximum, or maybe a little less. But it's still a long way from being immortal. Bloodline author James Rollins says that other scientists think increases in longevity will soon be possible. In regards to immortality, that Time Magazine article anticipates by 2045 that might be possible. I'm a little more pessimistic, but I do believe that we'll see significant increases in longevity. But will actual improvements in longevity come from the high-octane possibilities in sci-fi thriller Bloodline? Here's CU geneticist Tom Johnson. None of the things that are mentioned in this book are the approaches that we use. 
New York Times bestselling author James Rollins concedes that in Bloodline, he's stretching some scientific possibilities. But he says that makes for a more thrilling adventure. And it raises an even larger question. If you could live forever, would you want to? Would you live forever? If that was possible, you know, would you opt to take that, that magic pill that would allow you to live to 250 years? What is, how does that change the world? Who has access to that gift of, of life? Who doesn't? And if you have an infinite number of days ahead of you, or at least a significantly increased number of days, how does that change who you are as a person? Um, do you stop doing things simply because you think I could do that tomorrow and because you have an infinite number of tomorrows, nothing gets done? Do you get bored with life? The director of CU's lab on aging and longevity, Tom Johnson, says the biggest thriller out there has been going on for billions of years. After all, in a way, children are a lifeline to the future, which means to immortality. And in a way, you and I and everyone alive are the great, 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 and so on, grandchildren of single-celled organisms. That's the true miracle of life on Earth. And it may even be, you know, I'm becoming now a believer, and this is a belief, it's not verifiable as of yet, that life is a natural consequence of physical properties that are spread through the universe. So if we want to be immortal, take care of our children. Children are not ours to keep. They're only from us. And they're our step to a life that goes on. And uh, we are not destined to tell them what that life is going to be. But if one person could live forever, the sci-fi author James Rollins says he just might. To me, life is, is somewhat like a, um, a movie, and I, I would hate to have to leave midway along. I'd like to see what happens. I'd like to see what happens to the world, to people, to, you know, to this country, to next generations. The pure curiosity, I'd lean towards wanting to stick around. And if you'd like to extend the longevity of your listening to these experts, check our website, howonearthradio.org where we have extended versions of the interviews with New York Times bestselling author James Rollins and with CU's director of the lab on aging and longevity research, Tom Johnson. For How on Earth, I'm Shelley Schlender. As another extension of this exploration, James Rollins will give a book talk tomorrow evening at the Highlands Ranch, Tattered Cover. And you can get your own copy of Bloodlines right now by calling KGNU to freshen up your membership or pledge online at kgnu.org. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. This week's show was produced and engineered by Shelley Schlender. Susan Moran is our executive producer. The theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from William Shatner and from The Long Now. Can't listen to How on Earth at a regular time? No worries. Just go to howonearthradio.org and subscribe to our podcast using the iTunes button. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Beth Bartell.